We're coming back to John chapter 6 today. Let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask for your mercy as we approach your word. We understand that <clears throat> we're very limited in our understanding, and we, we know that we depend on the illumination of your Holy Spirit to lighten our eyes, to illuminate our minds, to help us to understand your word and apply it to our own lives and to see the path before us. We've been told that your word is a light into our path and a lamp into our feet, and we ask that we'd learn to look where the light shines rather than our eyes wandering all over the world, but to look where your light shines and to, to walk in the light of your word and by your Holy Spirit to obey you. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. <clears throat> As we read God's word, one of the things we really enjoy is miracles and wonderful things that God did throughout history to either save his people or uh, to sustain his people or sometimes just to bless them and comfort them and assure them. Uh, once in a while we see somebody in scripture ask for a sign and when God grants it we think, well, I'd like one of those. And we start to get the idea that that's the normal way to approach God. It's a common feeling amongst believers, especially young believers and especially if they've been reading a lot of books that they got in Christian bookstores instead of reading their Bible. <clears throat> when I started out, I was saved in a charismatic Bible study, uh, which, of course, bent me in that direction to start with. And then I, uh, for one summer, roomed with an elderly woman, an invalided woman that had a room to rent. And, uh, and she had a stack of those kind of books. Uh, I didn't know any better. I read them all, believed them all, and thought, this is great. This is what I want. I want to see God doing miracles. Lots of miracles in my life. Well... In John chapter 6, we see some people asking for a sign. I'd like, to, I'd like to encourage people to look away from this idea of wanting a sign for everything, this continual demand for proof. <clears throat> uh, I, I mean, there's all kinds of parallels in our own lives where we would be offended if somebody continually asked for us to prove something when we proved it before. I want to see your ID. You said, you know me. I'm part of your family. No, I want to see your ID anyway. Okay, fine. But that gets old. That gets old real fast. I, I worked in a 7-Eleven, no, let's see, Plaid Pantry. Same kind of deal, though. Years and years and years ago, minimum wage. And, uh, you know, they had this rule about carding people that were buying alcoholic beverages. And the only safe way I knew to do it was I carded everybody. Everybody. The guy was 80 years old that came in and buy a bottle of beer once a week or whatever it was. It was very seldom, but he didn't have any driver's license. He didn't drive anymore. So he showed me his Medicare card or some such thing, and I said, good enough. <coughs> he didn't like it, you know. But I, the only safe way I knew that nobody could say I was discriminating is I carded everybody. Okay, that was a special circumstance. <clears throat> Why do we keep carding God? You ask yourself that, because that's what you're doing when you're always asking for signs. We're going to talk about that this morning, about when it's appropriate to ask for signs and when it's not, and we need to see what God says about it. So turn to John chapter 6, <clears throat> verse 30, and if you remember what had just happened, Jesus had just fed the 5,000 on five loaves and two fishes. Um, <clears throat> 
some of them had wanted to, I mean, they saw the miracle and they wanted to take him by force and make him king. Uh, it's not a real good idea. I mean, Jesus is God in the flesh and you don't tell God what to do. Some of you may think you're supposed to. No, you're not, as a matter of fact. God is God and we're people. We ask him, we don't tell him. <clears throat> so what happened <clears throat> after they came looking for him and he said, you didn't come over here because you believed in me or because you saw the miracles. You came because you wanted more free bread. <clears throat> and they, and he, he told them that to not go after bread that's temporary. Remember we talked about that. What kind of bread are we supposed to be looking for? And they asked him, what, uh, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? And he said, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. Now that's a pretty simple statement. What he just told him is what, faith, what God wants of you is faith. We saw clear back in the book of Numbers that God asked Moses, what is it going to take for these people to believe me? They've seen all the miracles. They've eaten the bread. They've eaten the quail. They've drank the, the miraculously supplied water. And they've seen all the, the signs I've given them. What is it going to take for them to believe me? That was the issue. That's why when it says Abraham believed God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness, he credited, credited it to him as righteousness. <clears throat> Faith is the issue. So what was their response? Oh, is that simple? No, that's not it at all. What did they say in verse 30? Verse 30, it says, They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What do you work? These are the exact same people that just got fed 5,000 men and their wives and kids on five loaves of bread and two little bitty fish. They were supposed to be one kid's lunch. What sign do you show? <clears throat> These are the people. The people that said this, they were not looking for a path to faith. They were not saying, well, I'd really like to believe in God, but I just don't, I don't know. No, that wasn't it at all. They'd already seen him, they already believed him enough that they wanted to force him to be their king. And now they're doubting him when all he asked for is belief, it's faith. <clears throat> They'd just seen a fairly major miracle. And all Jesus did in verse 29 is to assure them that faith in him is what God required. So in that case, does their demand for a sign, does that look like faith or does it look like unbelief? It looks like unbelief. That was not faith. <clears throat> in fact, we're going to read later as Jesus elaborated on this whole subject of faith and identified himself as being the bread of life in verses uh, 32 and following, all the way through the end of the chapter, just about. <clears throat> We're going to see that they didn't like that when he told them that he was the bread of life and that the only way they could partake in God's blessing is to partake in the bread of life that God gave. Their, their, their response was, well, this is hard to believe, and it says that many of his disciples, the people that had been following them, that's what a disciple is, somebody that follows somebody and sits under their teaching, <clears throat> they quit, walked away, left him, didn't follow him at all anymore. 
Why? Unbelief. Okay. So the, they, they were not asking for a sign as believers looking for direction. They were asking for a sign testing someone that had already given them full proof. <clears throat> they did not believe him. <clears throat> Some of you probably remember Gideon and the Old Testament laying out a fleece. And I've, I've actually had on numerous occasions somebody say, well, you know, if you're trying to make a decision, just lay out a fleece. That's, that sounds real spiritual. Let's go back and look at that. In, in Judges chapter, well, Judges chapter 6, if you go back, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, right after Joshua, <clears throat> Judges chapter 6, the problem at the time is the, the uh, Midianites were <clears throat> swarming across the land and stealing all the food that Israelites produced. And Gideon was hiding down by a uh, wine press and trying to thresh out some grain so he could hide it from the Midianites. <clears throat> and it says in verse uh, 11, <clears throat> says there came a, an angel of the Lord. What do we know about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament? Some of you have been in the, it's Jesus, that's right. It is God in the flesh, it is Jesus. <clears throat> Every single time he shows up, it turns out it's God speaking to somebody face to face, and we know from the New Testament that Jesus is the only member of the Godhead that people get to see face to face as a human. <clears throat> so, an angel of the Lord showed up, sat under an oak, which is in Ophrah, <coughs> that pertains to Joash the Abizarite. And his son, Gideon, was threshing wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Okay, that's setting the stage for us. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Okay, we got a guy, youngest in his family, small family amongst the tribe of Manasseh, and he is hiding, threshing out some wheat, trying to save it from enemies, and God calls him a mighty man of valor. Well, I'd have the same response as Gideon. You got the wrong guy. I'm not mighty anything. <clears throat> not even mighty mouse. <clears throat> he says, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, O oh my Lord, if the Lord be with us, then why has all this befallen us? And where are all his miracles, which our father told us of? I haven't ever seen any of these miracles. What, if he's with us, then why aren't these things happening for us? They, they said, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Of course, he wasn't paying much attention because when we look back in verses 9 and 10, it says that they disobeyed him, and that's why he delivered them to the people that were oppressing them. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might. We're going to find out what the, his might was. And thou shalt save Israel from the, from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent thee? That was where his might was. That was where his power was, that he was sent by God. If you're doing what God sent you to do, then you have God's power back in you. <clears throat> and the Lord said, Surely I will be with you, and you shall smite the Midianites as one man. <clears throat> 
And verse 17, this is Gideon's response to this. God's given him directions. And Gideon doesn't know what to think. He says, if now I have found grace, that means undeserved merit. You're giving me something I don't deserve. If I have now found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that you're talking with me. How do I know it's even you? How do I know that you're really God in the flesh talking to me? I, I've never seen you before. You show up. You're telling me stuff that scares the life out of me. How do I know it's really God talking to me? <clears throat> Not a terribly bad question. We're going to see what goes on afterwards, though. <clears throat> he says, don't go away. He says, I'm going to bring a sacrifice and set it before you. He says, I'll wait. <clears throat> and Gideon took off. He really did a lot of stuff before he came back. <clears throat> he says, Gideon went in. He made ready a kid, a young goat, and unleavened cakes of an ephah of flour. The flesh he put in one basket, the, the broth in a pot. He cooked it. Had time to cook the, this goat. Boiled it. <clears throat> put the broth in a pot, and he brought out to him under the oak and presented it. And the angel of God said to him, Take the flesh and the unleavened cakes and lay them upon this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes and there rose up fire out of the rock, consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Well, he got his sign. So Gideon says, whoopee, let's go whip knots on the Midianites' heads. Is that what he said? No. Actually, verse 22 says, When the Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. Gideon was sure he was going to die because he'd seen God. Okay. <clears throat> By the way, when people tell me they've seen God, I, I'm looking for that kind of response. And when people tell me they just had such a wonderful time because Jesus came in and sat in their kitchen and had, had a cup of coffee with them, I think, really? Because every time Jesus appeared to somebody in the Old Testament or the New Testament, either the resurrected Christ, as in the Revelation when he showed up for John, or in the Old Testament, the pre-incarnate Christ, every time he showed up, it scared the life out of those guys. The only people I can say were examples, counterexamples. It didn't scare the women. He was gentle with them. Called them by name. It scared the men. <clears throat> okay. So he started to obey. He went forth, did, out, did what he was supposed to do. But by the time we get down to verses 36 and 30, 37, <clears throat> God gave him a command, told him what he was supposed to do, gather up people, and they're going to go fight against Midian. And Gideon said to God in verse 36, If thou wilt save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the floor, and if the dew in the morning be only on the fleece, and is dry on all the ground around it, then I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so, verse 38. <clears throat> For he rose up early in the morning and thrust the fleece together and wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Okay, that's flat out weird. The ground around is totally dry. The fleece is soaked with water. <clears throat> but Gideon didn't believe it anyway. Verse 39, Gideon said to God, Let not thine anger be hot against me. He knew he was on thin ice here. 
Let not thine anger be hot against me, and I'll speak but this once. Let me prove, I pray thee, but this once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, and upon all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, for it was dry on the fleece only. There was dew on all the ground. All right. <clears throat> was that an act of faith or an act of unbelief? It was unbelief. Why? Because God already gave him clear direction and already proved who he was that was talking to him. Scared him to death. He thought he was going to die because he says, I saw God. And that God gave him instructions as to what to do regarding the Midianites. And Gideon starts playing this give me a sign game. God must have really wanted it done because he went ahead and gave him those signs. But as we read through the rest of Gideon's life, which we're not going to do today, <clears throat> We see that he had a problem that way anyway. And in the end of his life, he had managed to get himself sucked into some idolatrous situations and really kind of turned his heart away from God. <clears throat> I don't think he did it on purpose. He just he got sidetracked. Okay. <clears throat> so what, is, what does Jesus say about people demanding a sign? Let's turn back to the New Testament. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 12, <clears throat> verse 38. Matthew chapter 12. <clears throat> As a couple of things happen in Matthew 12, they're important. In the early part of Matthew 12, he healed a man that was demon-possessed. <clears throat> cleared the demons out of him, and his enemies accused him of doing so by the power of Satan. You remember that? And he rebuked him and sh showed him that didn't even make sense. So you think Satan's fighting against Satan? Oh, we don't have anything to worry about then. He's going to knock himself out of the game. This is, you're wrong. But if instead I'm casting out demons by the finger of God, then the Spirit of God has come to you, and you need to be paying attention. <clears throat> so what did they say? <clears throat> Verse 38 says, Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. These were the ones that just accused him of casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons. Is it faith or is it unbelief? It's absolutely unbelief. It was just his enemies throwing out another test, throwing out another hurdle. Jump that one. <clears throat> so his response, oh, I turned away from it. His response in verse 39 is pretty clear. He answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and there shall be no sign given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. He went on to explain, he says, as the prophet Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of this great fish, so shall the Son of Man spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Not in the grave. The place of the dead. <clears throat> That's why he was able to say to the thief on the cross, today shalt thou shalt be with me in paradise. Because at that time, paradise was still in the heart of the earth. It hadn't been moved yet. Nobody had gone into heaven proper because the way hadn't been opened by Jesus' death at the cross. That's why we see in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, that 
that that way is open now through the torn veil. It says through the veil, which is to say his flesh. That's the way in. It wasn't open until then. <clears throat> he says the only sign you're going to get because you're an unbelieving generation that's asking, <clears throat> the only sign you're going to get is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Okay? So that's how Jesus feels about that sort of attitude, that sort of request when it's an unbelieving source and demanding a sign from God. <clears throat> so what makes it faith one time and unbelief a different time? Because it kind of sounds similar in different cases. <clears throat> Let's turn to John chapter 4. It's right back before where we're supposed to be right now. I know we're skittering ourselves all over the scripture, but <clears throat> John chapter 4, starting in verse 48, well, actually, starting right before that, <clears throat> Jesus was at the Galilean town of Cana, and he was preaching, he was teaching, and a man came there from Capernaum, in verse 46, says there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum, when he heard that Jesus was come out of Judas, Judah, Judea into Galilee, he went to him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. By the way, it was literally down. Capernaum was on the uh, northern end of the Lake Sea of Galilee, so it was right on the seacoast. <clears throat> and uh, Cana was 24 miles uphill away from there. So this man took a 24-mile uphill hike to get to Jesus and asked him to come down with him and heal his son. <clears throat> Jesus' response in verse 48 is interesting. I want you, I'm going to reread into the King James. I'm going to point out something that's not real obvious if you're not in the old English or Greek. <clears throat> in, in our modern day English, the word for you is the same whether it's plural or singular. If I say you and I mean you all, well, if I was in Mississippi, that's what I'd say, is you all. Uh, but in Oregon, we say you, whether it's plural or singular. In King James English, ye was plural. You is singular. Read what he says, <clears throat> verse 48. Then said Jesus unto him, except ye, plural, see signs and wonders, ye, plural, who will not believe. Who's he talking to? The whole group. <clears throat> but that man is hearing it as being personal. And he said, sir, come down before my child dies. Was that faith or unbelief? It was faith. He walked 24 miles to come see him. He believed in him enough to do that. And Jesus says, go thy way, thy son liveth. What was the clear command right there? Go home. And what's it say? Verse 49. Excuse me, verse 50. He believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him, and he went his way. He starts hiking back down 24 miles back home. In verse 51 as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, Thy son liveth. And he inquired of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So he's had a two-day trip up and back. <clears throat> so verse 53, it says, So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Thy son liveth. 
and he himself believed and his whole household. So the result of his faith in going up there and Jesus' response with answering his prayer was that that whole house came to saving faith. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. What about the rest of the crew? Well, on a one-by-one -one basis, I don't know. But people <clears throat> were responding differently to the exact same message. <clears throat> All right, what about Thomas? Everybody talks about doubting Thomas. Frankly, I think that's a little unfair. Yes, Jesus did admonish him. We'll go there. <clears throat> Let's turn to... Oh, let's see, John chapter 21. <clears throat> no, John chapter 20, is it? It's John chapter 20, I think. <clears throat> yeah, <clears throat> John chapter 20. Uh, Jesus had appeared to the 11, except that John, Thomas wasn't there. And they had all seen him. They had all talked to him. He showed him his hands and his side. Back in verses 19 through 23, <clears throat> Thomas wasn't there, verse 24. The other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. And he said to them, except I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side. He says, <clears throat> if it's the real Jesus, he's got a big gaping hole in his side. <clears throat> he says, except I see it, put my hand on it, I'm not going to believe it was eight days later. The disciples were within. <clears throat> Thomas was with them this time, and Jesus came in, the doors being shut. Remember, they were still afraid of the Jews. They were afraid that they were going to be next on the crucifixion list. <clears throat> Jesus appeared in the room with them, stood in the middle of them, and said, Peace be unto you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach hither your finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. <clears throat> Thomas answered and said, My Lord and my God. And here's the admonition, verse 29. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Who's he comparing them to? The other disciples? They got to see him, talk to him, look at the holes, everything. Thomas just asked that he get equal time. He asked that he get to see it too. He was one of the eleven. I don't consider that something to, to be condemned. I don't call Thomas doubting Thomas. He just wanted a more secure thing on which to base his faith than so-and-so told me. <clears throat> we have the written word of God. Thomas didn't have that. He had the Old Testament, but he didn't have any of the New Testament. It wasn't written yet. In fact, uh, there were several years here before any of it was written. <clears throat> In the next chapter, John chapter 21, although all of them had seen Jesus now, in chapter 21, Peter decides he's going to go back to commercial fishing. Now, did he only want to go for you know, a short trip to get some operating funds? I don't know. But Jesus called him on it because this is the fourth time that Jesus had called Peter away from the boat. Either the third or fourth time, I think the fourth time. <clears throat> oh, we read back through the scriptures, we can see uh, four or five times total, and a couple of them might be the same time. But Jesus once called him away and says, come with me, I'll make you fishers of men. Another time, 
he was with him in the boat, and Peter said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus said, fear not, from here on out, you're going to be a fisher of men. Uh, and I think there was a third time, and here in John 21, it's the fourth time, when he said, Peter, lovest thou me more than these? More than the, these what? These other disciples? That was never an issue. Yes, Peter loved Jesus more than them. It was the fish that was the question. Are you more committed to me than you are to commercial fishing? Because I gave you a job, and you're not doing it. You're going back to commercial fishing. We're not going to go there right now, but <clears throat> I think it's interesting that Peter had seen everything that Thomas had seen, but Peter's the one that led everybody astray, because when he says, I'm going fishing, everybody else says, yeah, we'll go too. So what should we do? If we're not looking for signs, what should we be doing? <clears throat> Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <clears throat> I'm going to start at verse 17. Last week we talked about, or a week before last, I don't even remember now, last week I guess we talked about baptism. I'm starting to get mixed up here. <clears throat> Verse 17, he says, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the preaching of the cross be made of none effect. Okay? He says, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. To them that perish is foolishness. But unto us who are, being, who are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The Jews require a sign. We've been seeing that over and over, haven't we? Show us another sign. <clears throat> The Greeks seek after wisdom. It's got to make sense to them. They've got to be able to spell it all out and make two and two add up to four every time. The Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. <clears throat> So rather than seeking the signs, God says we're supposed to be offering the gospel. <clears throat> there are plenty of times in the book of Acts when God did give signs. Okay, But he says we're supposed to be preaching the gospel. Believing the gospel results in the believer being placed into the body of Christ as a permanent member or part of the body of Christ. That's what we call the baptism by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, where it says we've all been baptized by one spirit into one body, talking about the body of Christ, and then we're all members of that body, and then we're to function as members of that body, which is what the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 12 is about. We're not going there today either. <clears throat> That's the true baptism that identifies us personally, permanently, with Jesus and his death and his burial and his resurrection. Water baptism is a reminder of that. It's a testimony of that, that we are identified with him and his death and his burial and his resurrection. 
But Paul goes on to say that the typical Jewish response of that time was to ask for a miraculous sign for a confirmation. The typical Gentile response was to require that it all makes sense to them, that it has to sound like wisdom to them. If they can't say, oh, yeah, 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 that makes sense, then they don't want to believe it. And Barak was telling me a couple of weeks ago about a guy that he's got in a Bible study that when it comes down to the nuts and bolts of who Jesus is and what he accomplished at the cross and who he is as our high priest and so forth, the guy can't accept it. He just will not. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense to him. I knew a guy that could not believe that Jesus' blood paid for the sins of the whole world. He says, no, it only paid for those that are going to be saved. I said, well, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's black and white. It's totally clear. He said, but that doesn't make sense, Chad. I said, it doesn't have to make sense. It's God's word. Whether I like it or not, that's what he says. I don't have to be able to make sense of it. I got a cell phone in my pocket, and I still can't make sense of that. Early this morning, Ann had a special call to her sister in Montana, not intentionally. She was just handling her phone, and all of a sudden, she's on the phone with her sister in Montana. She just hit some button that she didn't intend to. Guess what? Smartphones don't make sense to us. Not to, well, you know, having a smartphone and being smart enough to use it are obviously two different things. So. <clears throat> I'm having a hard time with it, especially this new one. Seems to be more sensitive to my fat fingers than my old one was. It doesn't have to make sense to me. <clears throat> and if it did, I'd be in trouble. You see, because the core issues of the gospel offends, offend what makes sense to me as a modern-day Gentile. The point that someone else could be punished for my sins and satisfy the righteousness and judgment, justice of God, I find that real hard to swallow. Because in our laws, if somebody else gets punished for my sins, somebody messed up in court. I'm the one that's supposed to suffer for my sins, you see. But in the economy of God, he can override that. Remember we talked about miracles being a manager's override, that God can override the rules? That's what a miracle is, is God overriding the rules, the physical rules of this world. The second thing is that Jesus would die for those he knew would reject him anyway, and he says most of them are going to. And that's why I can understand how that guy felt when he said, but that doesn't make sense, Chet. No, it doesn't have to make sense. It has to be true, and God says it's true. But it offends my sense of what makes sense. Because if he knew that the vast majority of people were going to reject every offer that he made, why would he bother dying for their sins? Let him die for their own. Because that's not what he chose to do. He died for the sins of the whole world. He made a clean, clear, honest offer of salvation to every soul in the human race. And the majority of us re reject it. That's what happened. The third thing is that a holy, all-powerful God would even take notice of an insignificant race like us, let alone deliberately subjecting himself to physical and spiritual and verbal and emotional abuse for us, from us. You know, that that the people he created would take the iron that he created and make it into nails and cut down a tree that he created and make it into a cross and nail him to that cross with the stuff that he created. Yeah, that bothers me. That, that doesn't make sense to me as a human. 
It's something on the order of my deliberately giving my life to save the slugs in the garden. I don't want to save the slugs in the garden. I want to kill them all. They mess up my garden. Okay, but that's, there's more difference between God and me than there is between me and a slug. Have you thought that one through? A slug and I have more in common than, on a human level at least, than I and God. Except that I'm made in the image of God and they're not. And that God died for me and he didn't die for them. Beyond that, you know, there's more difference between my intelligence and God's intelligence than there is between me and the slug. More difference between my ability and God's ability than there is between me and the slug. Would you lay down your life to save the slugs? No. We go out and buy some Lily Miller and uh, kill them all. Let's see. Fortunately, God doesn't look at us the way we look at the slugs. If it all had to make sense to me, I'd still be lost. Right around, right along with those in verse 18 where it says, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. To them that perish that's foolishness. So if I thought it's got to make sense to me or I'm not going to buy it, then I'd still be lost. Because that's who he says think it's foolishness. <clears throat> but since I confess from my heart that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men, from verse 25, because I do believe that, because I confess that from my heart, then I now fall into the group that the world calls fools. The world says I'm a fool because I believe in Jesus, and that's okay. That's just fine. It's okay for the world to be offended by the gospel and to call us fools. That's fine. We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. That's our job. Whether you've embraced that or not as your vocation in life, your calling of God in life, that is our job. We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. It's okay for people to disparage us for believing Jesus. They disparaged him as well. They said nasty things about him. It's okay for the world to hate what we teach. They hated what Jesus taught as well. It's okay for us not to have all the answers. Any of you that have been in our Bible study on Wednesday nights, you know I haven't got all the answers, but that's okay. I'm not, I don't have to have all the answers. You see, Jesus does have all the answers, and he doesn't always give them all to us. So it's okay for me not to have them and to confess that. I'm completely limited. Sometimes instead of giving people answers, Jesus posed a more appropriate question and just let them stew in their own juice. You know, the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees asked him some questions, and he asked them a question in return. And they said, um, um, uh, we don't know. He says, well, I'm not going to tell you either then. Chew on that for a while. Okay? He doesn't always give the answers. Okay? Is it okay for us to ask for a sign? And if so, when is it okay? <clears throat> in general, I would say, that since I, I look in the New Testament, in the epistles, I don't see the apostles, actually even in the book of Acts, I don't see the apostles ever asking for a sign, although God gave them a lot in the book of Acts. Uh, they didn't ask for them. The, there were three circumstances under which the signs came. Usually, if not always, it happened when there were unbelievers. I stepped on the cord. <clears throat> 
Usually, if not always, it happened when there were unbelieving Jews present. There were people with Peter who did not believe that the Gentiles ought to be saved by faith when he went to the house of Cornelius. And they believed, and the Holy Spirit filled those people, and they're speaking in tongues. Why? To let these Jews who didn't think those Gentiles ought to be able to be saved by faith, thought they ought to become Jews, to let them know that, that God is doing something new. There are unbelieving Jews present. They had to have that sign. Okay, the second thing, and it was usually but not always, <clears throat> it happened when the gospel first went into an area. When, you know, when Paul showed up on the island of uh, Crete and was helping load firewood, he was doing more than everybody else. All the people on the, on the boat there were soaked and scared from this boat that wrecked, uh, ship that wrecked. 276 people on the ship. Paul's out there hauling firewood with the people from the island of Crete. He's, he's serving. And uh, a viper was in the firewood that he was hauling on. It bit him on the hand and wouldn't let go, and he flicked it off into the fire. Okay, this seems like kind of a harsh thing to happen to God's servant while he's trying to serve. But the people were watching him because they thought, well, he must be a murderer or something because, look, he escaped the storm and and God's not going to let him live because he just got bit by that critter that we know you die when you get bit by that. And he didn't swell up. He didn't fall down. He didn't die. And they, then they decided he was a god. Okay, that was not good either. But Paul preached and explained, and the chief guy in that area asked, he says, my, my father-in-law is sick at home. And he went to his house and healed him, and they spent quite a long time there on that island it doesn't clearly say that Paul spent a lot of time preaching the gospel there. But knowing Paul, I kind of think he did. So what was the purpose of the miracle? It was to give credence to the message. In every single case, the miracles were to give, to draw attention to and confirm the validity of the message that was being preached. Acts chapter 2 and everything there. It was always, always to bring attention to the message of the gospel and to confirm the truth of the gospel. Okay. It was never just for the comfort or entertainment of the believers. We'd like to see another miracle today because that's exciting. That's not why God does miracles when he does them. And sure he does. But the fact is, all the way through the book of Acts and all the way through history since then, people died and were not raised from the dead. People got sick, and they were not healed miraculously. Paul himself got, had something wrong with him. All we know from Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12 is that it, he had what he called a thorn in his flesh. I think it was something wrong with his eyes because uh, in Galatians chapter 4, he says, I know you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me if you could have. Why? Because there's something wrong with his eyes. In Galatians chapter 6, he says, look, I wrote this one with my own hand. Look how big a letters I had to write it in because he couldn't see. Uh, I think that was probably what he was referring to. I can't prove it. but uh, So three times he says he prayed and asked God to take it away. What did God say? Stop asking. Oh, well, here's the great apostle Paul, and he can't even heal his own disease. And his partner in the work at one point, Epaphroditus, got terribly sick, and the whole group had decided this guy's not going to make it. He's going to die. God did raise him up, but not miraculously. He got well slowly. Paul was not allowed to just whip a healing on him. See, we get the idea that God ought to just be happy to throw out a miracle anytime we want to see another one. 
He doesn't do it for entertainment purposes. He doesn't do it just for our comfort. He does it to confirm the message of the gospel, and especially when the gospel goes into an area for the first time. <clears throat> when it was first going into the whole Mediterranean area, which is what we're reading about in the book of Acts, yes, there were a lot of miracles and signs that were given to confirm the truth of the message as it went. <clears throat> in the, the lives of missionaries that I've known that have taken the gospel where it's never gone before, there's been some rather strange occurrences that happened and they've told me about, and they seem to be genuine divine interventions. Some of them undoubtedly saved the lives of the missionaries. I know one situation where uh, they didn't know what was happening at the time. They just all of a sudden knew, and they heard a noise on the trail behind them, and they looked, and they couldn't see anything, and they were getting scared, and they heard a whack, and they all of a sudden they just both of them took off running. They sprinted off down this trail. Well, they found out years later after the gospel had gone into the tribe that they were reaching with and they had believers, one of them says, yeah, that was me hiding off in the brush. I was going to kill you. My bowstring broke. So I was re-stringing the bow and it slipped out of my hand and whacked a tree. And before I could get the string on the bow again and shoot you, you guys took off running. Was that God's intervention? Yeah, it might have been. I mean, the timing was awfully good if it wasn't. And there's lots and lots and lots of other things like that. I've told about some of them during the evening meeting. We're going to run out of time here, so I'm not going to go into detail. But they always serve to confirm the authority of the gospel, that God does step in. When's it appropriate to ask? Well, if we've exhausted our biblical sources of information, and we're still trying to make a decision, we're not sure what to do, I think it's just fine to ask God for special direction. He might give it in some miraculous form, or he might just have somebody show up and, and give it a real solid opinion when you thought, I never even asked you, where, how'd you get this? Well, I'd say maybe God stepped in, huh? Uh, <clears throat> if we already know what he says, though, and we're just hoping he's going to change his mind, that's not appropriate to be asking for signs to confirm something when you already know what God says about it. If you know something's wrong and you decide, well, I want a sign showing me it's wrong. If God's word says it's wrong, that's your sign. You don't need any more miracles. That's unbelief. That's rebellion. And you want to remember that it's entirely possible. Sometimes there's a decision we want to make that both of them are right. Both of them are fine. Both of them would be equally pleasing to God. Then in that case, you're free to choose the one you want. You're okay. God's not telling you what color shirt you got to wear this morning. Did you pray long and hard before, in my case, it's laughable. I always wear a blue shirt. So, you know, uh, no, as a matter of fact, I didn't. I just put it on because I thought it was a little cold out today, and I put on the flannel shirt. It's entirely possible there'll be two choices that are equally pleasing to God and within which we are perfectly free to just choose the one we want. Does God answer with miraculous signs today? Yeah, I believe he does. But I think it happens most often amongst, amongst brand new believers because he's confirming their faith. He's teaching them. He's drawing them along and giving them reasons to believe, things that they can look back to and say, you know what? When I first got saved, this is what God did for me. And I remember that. Okay? I had some of those too. I don't go talking about them very often. That's not the point. God's word is the point. My observation is that the old soldiers, the people that have been walking with God for some time, are expected to go ahead and press on without looking for additional signs 
So as I said, a good example for the young believers that are trying to learn to walk with God. We're not supposed to be yammering for signs all the time. Now, I'm aware of counterexamples, but usually, as I said, they happen on mission fields where the people are already way out on a limb doing what they believe God wanted them to do, risking their life to serve, and God stepped in and did something special to meet their need or to confirm the message in whatever way. I don't think we're supposed to be continually demanding that God give us more proof. He's given us all the proof he needs and all the proof we need. They were already out on a limb from a human perspective, and God just brought all the circumstances together in a miraculous way to meet their need and to confirm their message. I'm going to stop with that. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we'd ask that you'd confirm our hearts in your word and by your spirit, that we're not constantly doubting you, constantly looking for outward appearances of, of proofs beyond what your word says. Your word is good enough. Your word is true. We believe it, we've staked our life on it, and we, we want to continue to believe regardless of the circumstances around us. We ask that you'd build our faith through obedience in your word. Teach us to follow you faithfully, not demanding that you prove yourself every day. Help us to step forward in faith and obey your word in Jesus' name.